Okay, Allison. So I kind of keep thinking for posterity, like what are the great historical questions that will be asked of our own times? And I think one of them might be, where were you when Taylor Swift released Midnight's? I was actually building a papier mache uh, version of Fala the dog with Uncle Hendrick. <laughs> oh my God. Not Fala. Don't bring him into this. I have to. I have to. Iconic. Where were you? I mean, nowhere is interesting. I was at home trying to fix my typewriter and possibly see if Tom Hanks would fund its repair. I know he's into that kind of thing. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. I'm actually not a caretaker for Uncle Hendrick. But what about Fala or the ghost of Fala? I'm deeply invested in Fala. I'm very happy for people who are fans of Taylor Swift. I'm very interested in Kit Kidridge, but I don't, I'm not actually an elderly man's caretaker. I wish I was, you know, like a Kit Kidridge or a Joe March taking care of an elderly aunt. I'm just not there. Okay. I mean, that's like really good self-awareness. Thank you for that transparency. I mean, I'm also now just thinking about Follow. Like you saying that really set me because I'm like seeing scenes from Follow's life and what a lifetime. Follow was born later than I would have thought. Follow is an April baby. This is, of course, the dog that belonged to the Roosevelt family. And they live until 1952, but were only born in 1940. I don't know why I always pictured Fala as being part of like the 1930s. That Googling was inspired by the fact that Kit's uncle's dog looks exactly like Fala, and Kit in book three receives a pin that looks exactly like this kind of black Scotty Terrier. I'm here for Fala cosplayer fanfic in this book, and also just like not like never forget Fala gets more exhibit space at the FDR presidential library than Japanese internment, or at least he used to. I believe they've since rectified that, but. Fala, like, do you think Fala was better cared for than the Roosevelt children? Like, do you ever think about that? I think the timelines are different, so it's hard to compare because I think Fala comes so late in life and is kind of like a beloved grandchild when there were not always actually beloved grandchildren. I think if you're going to expect Eleanor Roosevelt to crank out a my day every day, you're not going to get great child care, but you might get good dog care. Like, you won't be part of her day, but Fala could easily be part in and out, basically. I do think it's interesting that, like, in our culture now, it's like, no one is saying karma is a terrier. They're saying karma is a cat. Wow. Good or bad. What a beautiful segue. (laughs) I think that was good. I think that was good. I, it is such a crazy time with the midnight release, and there have been other releases that are equally worthy of attention, but it's like, if you say anything that's not like, this is the best album she's ever made, like people do not want to receive that. And I am trying to mentally prepare myself because I've organized a PowerPoint party with, on the, our Discord. So if you're not on our Patreon, get on the Patreon ASAP. We're hosting a PowerPoint party. You can still pitch a talk. A five-minute PowerPoint on a topic of your choice just has to be related to Taylor Swift. I'm alternating between three different topics right now. I haven't committed. But I really want to know where people are at with this album because I don't know if you know too much about it, but basically like she and Jack Antonoff made this album while their partners are off on a location filming a movie together. So they were like bored or that's how it was presented to me. 
And it, it feels like songs from throughout her career. So it kind of just doesn't feel like it keeps up in my mind with where we were going with her last two albums. So that's not a popular take. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it kind of feels like some of her takes are from like Reputation or different albums. So do you think I've listened to this album? You definitely have not listened to this album. <laughs> I, That's okay. Have, I'm just saying. I have only I have only heard snippets on TikTok and I was reflecting today and this is not to be it's not like I'm for something so I'm against something else. I like Harry Styles. I will only listen to five Harry Styles songs. I don't need more. Like I have what I like. I have okay. the same thing with a lot of artists. Like I have the ones that I like. I don't feel a need to branch out. I've heard the best parts, so I'm told on TikTok. I just like I haven't listened to anything else. That's fair. I mean, it's like you, you can engage how you want, basically. I'm a headline you can dip reader. In and dip like out. I read the headlines. I know that's I know what I need to com- know. You're kind of like going on Encarta music, but as an adult, <laughs> yeah. long pad. Like you're like, give me the 30 second clip I got. I thank you, Ella Fitzgerald. I get what you're all about. Moving on now, talking heads. I think that's completely fine. And we can talk, you, this book kind of introduces ideas about what it means to be a fan or like modeling yourself after someone or being interested. But I I feel like this release has revealed to me that I'm not as into Taylor Swift as I thought I was because I'm seeing people on TikTok and I'm like, whoa, I have not committed the time that you have. Like I was up at midnight. I listened to the whole album right away. Didn't stay up till 3 a.m. Not that committed. But, you know, and I think it's very good. I think it's going to take me some time because I'm the opposite of you. Like I love going on the full journey with someone and I'm like, wow, I love to see how you're like evolving or changing over time or whatever. So I need more time to sit with this album. But I also just want to say that Carly Rae Jepsen also released mm-hmm. an album the same day. And it's it's kind of chaotic, but it's so fun as an album. So if you just want to be in a good mood and like dance around your kitchen, like please put on this album and support her. And a straight mutual friend of ours texted me and was like, oh my God, Carly Rae Jepsen <laughs> is still out here. And I was like, this is how you've told me that you're straight because <laughs> queer people like know who Carly is. But and also like 1975 put out an album like there's a lot of great music to be had right now so i don't want taylor to take up all of the zeitgeist but i do think i think what she's doing is interesting i'm just putting this out there can we please produce an album without jack antonoff that's all i'm gonna say oh i love i think he's lovely i think he's cool no i think he's also lovely and cool but i'm just saying i think that they've worked together i think they have similar areas where they need to grow and by that i mean like when taylor swift invites a woman to collaborate she's a backup singer Mm -hmm. and it's like can we give the chicks and lana their own verse perhaps like i'm just saying i actually think taylor Swift's probably a lovely person i have no reason to think otherwise but i'm just saying like that would be maybe if she had like a female producer they would be like my dream is that brandy carlisle produces a taylor swift album that's what i want to manifest into the world i just would love to hear what that sounds like but anyway that's that's kind of what i've been obsessed with and it's not so it's like there's this whole idea in the culture now of like being fans of taylor swift fans or like how people are like showing up online and and creating all this like really funny content and i feel like that's what i'm experiencing experiencing this week too like i'm so like amazed by what I'm seeing among the fandom like I can't wait for our own PowerPoint party because I can't wait to learn from other people and just like vibe out with people over shared interest like that's such a fun thing to do so that's what I've been involved in Allison like what's been you know (laughs) capturing your attention if not Taylor Swift I've been watching Love is Blind and Married at First Sight and I enjoy both of those very much and I think something that we learn in book three of the Kit series is that Ruthie Smithens, Kit's best friend, is just like very much this idealist and she loves fantasy and she loves 
romance and the big screen and she would probably love daytime soap operas like i think ruthie would love lover and you know other things of that ilk and she would stay up until midnight right and she would love all of those things um love is blind has been very chaotic this season because a woman who people are now referring to as that so raven because her name is raven iconically decided to do jumping jacks while someone was talking about their trauma on the other side (laughs) of the pod and she was like never lose an opportunity to engage in the exercise she's also coming out hard against naps i don't think that that's like a prevailing attitude that we need to promote right now i'm enjoying those shows very much i watch the watcher that's as much as i'll say about that program because like we've all already moved on and i find real estate disclosures actually interesting and that show did not strike that chord for me so you know it's like we have Hmm. enough real estate drama with like are the kittredges gonna make it through this winter I think so. Don't have a great feeling. Do not have a great feeling about this. I'm, but I mean, I'm guessing that Kit is spending her tenth birthday at a hobo camp. I don't know that for sure. That's my guess. I don't know. Have you read ahead? I have like, not read ahead, this? and I'm sure Kit heads who have read ahead are screaming at me Kit that that's heads. not what oh happens at all. But I Whoa. am enjoying these books very much. I want to talk a lot today about like why I think these are sort of an ideal American Girl book, but. I'm enjoying them. I also enjoyed the Rebecca series very much. I think they are also very different. I think that's true. I've I've been loving them too. This has been such a great streak of different characters. So I'm excited to get into it. I haven't watched Love is Blind yet, but I'm watching that starting on Wednesday. And just, it's like when I hear your reflections on it, I'm like, my God, who hasn't been victimized by the presidential fitness test or like our (laughs) fitness obsessed culture? Like that's insane, but also like so, like that visual is just, I haven't seen it yet, but I can't wait to see that play out and the reaction to it. I'm happy for the Lachey's. Like I think the only people who have truly won are the contestants from the first season and Nick and Vanessa Lachey. And I think based on our readings of Jessica Simpson's memoir, is that something that he necessarily deserved in the past? Absolutely not. No, but I think that we can believe in a redemption arc. And I think part Mm. of what this book does really well is talks about like, do you want to retreat into fantasy or do you want to find heroes? And I think about like the journey that we've taken with Kit, even in just three books, 180 pages from her being all about the fantasy, wanting to live with like Robin Hood to Kit basically being like, I feel like Kit, if she lived through 2008, would be at Occupy explaining subprime mortgages. Mm -hmm. 100%. No questions asked. I mean, yeah, I can't wait to get into it. I will just say that I don't need to redeem Nick Lachey. (laughs) I'm ready to dive right in. Are you ready? I am ready. Uh, first of all, thank you, Val Tripp, for this 2000 treasure. This, Beautiful. This book could vote now. This book could buy an alcoholic beverage, like a margarita, if yes. you wish. Um, let's give a recap. I'm actually loving the recaps I find on the internet that really poorly describe this book, but I'm going to go with the classic. Kit overhears terrible news just before Christmas. Her family might lose their house. Even with rent from Borders, the Kittredges don't have enough money to pay the bank. Then Kit ends up in a fight with her best friend, Ruthie. On top of it all, Kit has to spend her free time caring for grouchy Uncle Hendrick and his dreadful dog, Inky. She wonders how much worse this Christmas can get, exclamation point. But when Kit finds hope in an unexpected place, she plans a surprise to light up the Kittredge's Christmas. Oh boy. Yep. 
she did do that. Do you think that's an accurate summary of this book? It is. And I am going to say right off the top, there are so many things that repeat from the Molly McIntyre books to Kit Kittredge, right? And so Val Tripp had like close to 15 years between writing those two books. I feel like so many things that could have been better in the Molly books, book by book, are smoothed out and improved for Kit. Like, I think this is where Val was always meant to be, which is a real place in the Midwest, pulling on real primary sources, dealing with a middle-class family that has, like, just slightly lost their footing, but you can kind of sense that it's temporary going through an actual, like, year, a calendar year. Like, to me, this is, like, exactly where, like, a conventional, traditional American girl book, like, this all works for me. Yes. I mean, to quote 98 Degrees, it's all because of you, Val. Um, And I feel that. I do think there's still some awkwardness in terms of, and it's not attributed to Val per se, but the brands dealing with class. Like, I think this is one of the books where we see them, the brand, like really trying to deal with class difference between girls and like how to navigate that as friends. And I think that that's a really important topic. I'm not sure that this book like sticks the landing 100%, like, but I do think it makes a good good effort like to navigate an uncomfortable situation, which is like, what do you do when your friend and her family have hit hard times and you haven't and you empathize with them? And, you know, if you're a kid, like you feel a lot of shame around poverty and you don't want to accept help, but, you know, how do you navigate that? So I think, you know, it's taking on like actually huge topics here and dealing with it in a compassionate way. I think something that is so different about this book relative to others, because this isn't the first time that we've encountered a character who doesn't have a lot of advantages or privilege, right? Obviously, the Addie book deals with this like in a very sophisticated way. But what's different about Kit is she's so kind of like willing and eager to like shout out loud what's going on. She's like, we open with her going to the movies and she's embarrassed that her dress has issues with it. Her dress is patchy and she has rickrack. Like, she has the rickrack, which is an expression my mother says all the time. And she doesn't feel good about it, right? She feels like she wishes she wasn't out. She doesn't want to eat too much of her friend Ruthie's popcorn because Ruthie has already paid for her to see the film. And they're calling it an early Christmas present. And I think part of what works about this book is with Samantha. To have Samantha understand her privilege in her case meant kind of dropping in on people who live differently. Kit is able to contrast in real time like what her life was literally six months ago with what her life is this Christmas. And I think the way that she processes and thinks out loud and making her kind of a wannabe journalist, it just works really well for this series. Like I think this is one of the strongest characters that Valtrip has ever written because she really comes across as a fully formed person who's like going through a change. Whereas there was always something for me about like Felicity or Josefina where it was like, this is a girl in a historical context. I think Kit like really kind of bleeds through and the depression serves as a solid background as opposed to like, oh, the depression is a character and I see what she's doing there. Like this feels like an authentic experience someone would have had. Yeah, I think she feels like a full-fledged character and we see her like having a full range of emotions. And and I think to your point, like 
the thing that's really powerful to me is the minute she has a thought, it doesn't stay internal. And we have this feeling of like, oh, we're just in Molly's head with her Mm -hmm. and everyone else doesn't know what she's thinking. It's like she's bringing the internal external almost immediately and actually naming the discomfort in a lot of situations, which is really admirable, like as opposed to just suffering in silence. Like it's interesting because it's almost like we're getting Nellie's perspective. Like instead of doing like Samantha's books from Samantha's perspective, which is obviously what we got, like it's almost like this is the depression almost from like Nellie's positionality. And it's, we're not getting the discomfort of like Samantha being like, well, you could be a maid for my family or like, I'll have, I'll smuggle you to live in my attic. And that's the kind of like charity that she's envisioning in certain like clunky moments. It's, you know, it just feels very real. Like these books feel really real. Like these were conversations they like kids would have had, or, you know, it just feels, it's not like even neatly resolved or like, I don't know. It just feels, it feels very sweet, but it feels very real. And I, what I admire about Val is like, she lets kids sit with the sadness of these moments. Like she's not trying to rush you through the great depression and not like bum out or like make sad a real child reading this book. It's like, she's painting a lot of scenes that are really sad. Like that movie scene is really tough. Like as an opening scene, it's like I felt her shame without her having to pull a Josefina and run outside and yell like shame, shame, shame. It's like when she's counting, like I'm only going to take two kernels of popcorn so she won't think I'm, you know, taking too much. Like that just says so much. I was thinking about that and, you know, there's really very few details in this book that feel like throwaways. Like, I do feel like with some Mm. longer American Girl books, it's like, we've had books that have had entire scenes that felt like filler. And I don't feel that way with the Kit books. They feel very tight, very well executed, like every single thing serves a purpose. And I flagged right away that we had this kind of thing about the popcorn because something that we remarked upon quite a bit with Rebecca was the sensory details and the extent Mm -hmm. to which food had this cultural importance and that food was a way of starting conversations. And the fact that we're given this detail very early on and the fact that we've been told that like mother is, you know, cutting the bread a certain way and really skimping. I think that Kit is hungry. And I kept thinking that and I was like, what if you read this entire book assuming that Kit is hungry at school, she's hungry at home, and that that's going to affect a lot of her behavior. And the way I read the conversation that she has with Ruthie, because I went back and I was like, read the entire book just assuming she's hungry, right? Because she probably is. The conversation they have upon leaving the theater, Kit is not able to fully escape at the movies. She loves seeing footage of Amelia Earhart and then kind of doesn't like this film about Dottie Drew. Um, When the feature movie began, Kit didn't even try to make sense of the story. It was about a silly woman in a tiara singing and dancing her way up a staircase shaped like a wedding cake. And when they go outside, um, she's just kind of in a bad mood and she basically picks a fight with Ruthie the entire walk home. And you kind of wonder, like, we've gotten these snippets of how dad's life has changed. I don't think that Val has to, like, put a fine point on it for you to get that, like, she's not comfortable. Like, she had a bad time at the movies. Yes. And I think what you see is, like, her aging past her years. Mm -hmm. And that shows up in her diminishing capacity to engage Ruthie's, you know, flights of fancy into talking about princesses. Like when they go to the movies, the difference is like they see a newsreel with Amelia Earhart, a cartoon, and then a a musical. And Ruthie comes out infatuated with the star of the musical because she's all like dressed up and beautiful. 
And kids like, what are you talking about? Like, I love Amelia Earhart. Like, that's so cool. Like, can you imagine? And the like subtle, like a freight train foreshadowing is she's like, Amelia Earhart did everything on her own. Like she flew across the Atlantic in 1932 all by herself. And so it's like, that's going to come back later. But in that conversation that they have, it becomes really clear that Ruthie is still a child in the sense that she can very easily escape and be comforted by like fantasy worlds and fiction. Whereas Kit, it's like all too real. Like she is becoming an adult in the in a child's body. And I think there's a internal mourning, consciousness or conscious or not, that that's taking place. That something has been taken from her. That she can't go with Ruthie on this point, just in the same way that she can't go to the movies like Ruthie can, and all these other things. They also have this kind of direct confrontation confrontation with other people's struggles as they're walking home, right? It's like the seasons are changing and there's some really smart scene setting that like, you know, it's fall going into winter in Ohio. It's going to be cold, right? They're bundled up. Her dress has these issues, right? Because it's kind of coming apart and they walk by people's things who've been evicted. As you say, Kit is sort of like, you know, what, what a real hero does is they do everything by themselves. And there's this conversation about whether people should ask for help, reflecting back on the fact that Ruthie's family has already helped Kit's family. Um, And I love when Ruthie says, so there's nothing wrong with make-believe. And Kit says, but imaginary stuff doesn't solve any problems. And I think part of what this is also doing for kids who would love these books is American Girl kind of has that duality where the Great Depression is real, these girls are not, right? So whether Mm -hmm. you're a Kit or a Ruthie, there is something for you here. Like, this story is made up, but the back of the book is real, and enough of this is real to kind of satisfy whether you are, like, an Amelia Earhart girly, which I am, like, not personally, but I'm not, like, a princess girly either. I kind of like that it isn't sort of like one is condemned and the other is right because as you're walking them walk by this stuff it's like neither of them exactly understands why this person has been evicted but they both have a point yeah and i think it's like to your like as you're saying they're just processing in different ways like on the next page there kit says you've got to admit that make-believe and imagination aren't going to help them like pointing at the stuff left out on the street And Ruthie responds, they should have imagined a way to get money. They could have done something. And then they kind of keep talking and sort of end at an impasse. But it's very clear they're like processing this in different ways. And I think that kind of speaks to our own times, frankly, where it's like when things are difficult, which is like seemingly all the time now, some people like therapeutically get some kind of comfort from like doom scrolling or just being confronted with like facts about the situation. And other people are like, get me out of here. I'm going to go watch like you know, a superhero movie or whatever is your thing. But so it's like, you know, in a way it's like this scene encapsulates really very both valid ways of dealing with trauma. We're also learning that, you know, part of what's appealing to Ruthie about being at Kit's household is there's a lot of people. And that is exactly what Kit is frustrated about with being in his ho- in her household. So I think there's kind of always like a grass is greener. And we're learning that they have these holiday traditions that might be difficult to sustain this year. And something that I really appreciated and kind of thought was fun was they both enjoy sort of fantasizing about what's happening with the borders, right? Is one of them going to get proposed to like how are they going to celebrate at Christmas and I thought that was kind of a smart reminder of like this is why they're friends they both are kind of into like 
harmless gossip and kind of like prying a little bit into family matters. And then things get very real very quickly when they realize that Kit's father is having a conversation with Ruthie's father and that behind closed doors, like things are actually happening in real time between their parents who also seem to be quite friendly. I I really love what plays out in this book, which is Ruthie trying to keep things the way that they've always been and Kit kind of trying to adapt and them trying to like find some middle Like, Ruthie's father is literally laying out the fact that this family might lose their house, and Ruthie is reminding Kit that they need to go to the ballet on December 26th. Yeah, Ruthie's, like, she needs, like, a tone check, perhaps, in that moment. But when when it's revealed, it's her dad, I guess. Me too. Oh, my God. Me too. Oh, my God. The dad is the president of the bank that's going to foreclose? Like, what? It does make me wonder, again, like, someone please come up with the ledger for this family. We learned that it's been five months since her father has been able to really work, right? Since he's been drawing an income, maybe longer. But I think part of what being really blunt and explicit about this timeline is showing like her family's life has fallen apart in one season yes it's like this is this is a very expedited fall and you can see her like really and everyone is really trying to struggle we talked on the last episode about the appearance of everything being fine being really important to the mom like especially with the borders and so it's like she's kind of doing that while she's also trying to make all this like everything work and all these bills get paid but we also learned in that scene, like, that's not happening. Like, despite killing themselves to make this all work, it's like the electric bill is, is late, the phone's been turned off, like, mortgage is five months behind. Like, I felt such stress even just, like, reading the scene because I'm like, oh, my God, where are we going to get this money? Because, again, we've already gone to Uncle Hendrick, and he said no. We know Uncle Hendrick is going to say no, and one thing I love about Val, she is not going to keep you guessing. It's like, if you are getting Scrooge vibes from Uncle Hendrick, don't worry, Kit is going to make that connection right for you. Like, you are not going to yes. have to wonder about any of that. You know that mom is going to go to Uncle again, and he is going to say no again, Um I do think that part of what's happening between the two of them as these things are playing out, it's not that Kit blames Ruthie's father. You don't get that sense at all. Kit is deeply embarrassed that this has happened. There's so much shame in her behavior and in her like private reflections. And I think something that's sort of like behind the scenes is like Kit is behaving as her parents have have prepared her to behave like they have changed the expectations of what it means to be a child in this family and that means like you help with breakfast you help with dinner you're doing all these chores and you're not complaining about it and what's really evident in that scene where the dad is there and then immediately ruthie's like i want to go to the ballet don't worry my mom's going to pay for it and you can wear my hand-me-down christmas dress that i've outgrown from last year is like oh and your parents have not prepared you to be with kit in this new reality that her family is experiencing or they've prepared her in a very specific way about what it means to like be supportive in this moment and they could still be navigating what that might look like they're they're trying to figure it out but like from what we've seen it's like charity from these families is like they got the wood that should have been for her fort Mm -hmm. to build out the sleeping porch to like take in more borders and she's given Ruthie her hand-me-down Christmas dress and that she and the mom have offered to take them to the ballet and a fancy lunch on them. I just want to see some numbers. Like, being honest, like, I just want to see some numbers because Hendrick is saying that 
They're living beyond their means. There seem to be a lot of people living in this house and they're not even coming close to hitting the mortgage. I think what is obviously very realistic is most people, most people in the United States are one missing paycheck away from financial distress, right? So I think that that is absolutely realistic then to now. I think what is also realistic is this kind of American exceptionalist thinking that they've taught her, which is this is temporary. They're not going to be poor. They shouldn't sell their house. They shouldn't sell things off. And you really can't blame Ruthie. I think you're spot on that she hasn't been able to adjust. How could she? Like no one is sending them signals of what to do. I do also love that like this book complicates in a very real way this narrative of like people sought escape during the depression and those escapes all worked, right? When actually like Kit knows that she's being done a favor by someone paying for her to see a film and she's kind of stressing about it like she's not really enjoying it she's not able to check out and watch the film um i will say i saw don't worry darling a few weeks ago and it was among the more stressful experiences that i've had recently like that film was it like was it as bad as people said or was it good or where did you come down on it i think harry styles is a great actor i do genuinely believe that i think florence Hugh is a fantastic actor. I think that really goes without saying. I liked a lot about it, but I can't say much without, I think, giving it away. I found it an an extremely stressful experience to be in a theater watching that film. And I was alone in a theater with just two other women who were like, we were all separate, also watching it alone on a Friday afternoon. And I was like, this is stressful. I am not, I am not enjoying <laughs> Well, this I experience. feel like you can spoil it because it's been out long enough and like listeners just skip ahead 20 seconds. But like, isn't it kind of like Stepford Wives in a certain way? Or it's like, this was all failed, you like ex- utopian experiment or something like that? Like central to the premise is sort of like, what will men do? do to trap women like like that is like i don't i don't think that is actually like giving a lot away but you are very disoriented in terms of like what year is it what is actually going on what is the victory project and what does it feel like to be like trapped and i honestly found it to be sort of like a stressful watch because you're waiting for the other shoe to drop the entire time you understand that what you're watching is not a clean cut reality because it can't be but you don't understand why and i Mm. do think that like kit kidridge as she grew up like she would not enjoy that kind of film experience like kit would watch movies about like uh people hiking and like you know, the James Franco movie where he cuts his own arm off 127 hours. This is not a Kit Kid, or I think she'd like movies about dogs. This is not a Kit Kidridge movie. I found it to be an extremely stressful watch. Um, I don't think Uncle Hendrick would like it either. Okay. I feel... I believe you. I feel like Uncle H is the type to say, like, you get what you get and don't get upset. Uncle H would just be home watching Fox News <laughs> on an endless loop. And he'd be like, that's right, like, indiscriminately every 20 seconds. He'd be like, mm-hmm. Father Coughlin is on the radio. He's turning oh it up. When War of the Worlds oh my God. airs by Orwell, he's like, that's right. That's right. He's like, I predicted it. That's right. We all knew who was getting here. I told all of you, like, there is no way he's ever enjoyed a movie. 
I do find the introduction of the dog sort of like a fascinating element of this and kind of like just a merch opportunity. Like thinking back to when Felicity so yeah. randomly befriends an animal. Like, why is this happening? This had to be a merch thing. Because why is this dog here? Yeah, that I bumped against that too because basically what ends up happening is like they come home for the movies, they get this, hear this news that the family might lose their house. And her mom goes off to Uncle Hendrick and is like, once again, will you save my family from foreclosure? And he's like, once <laughs> no. again, you did this to yourself. I'm not going to help you, which is like, wow, stunning. Like really leaning in, Val is like leaning into the Scrooge characterization big time with Uncle Hendrick. And then she comes home and she's like, well, but he basically did say if I came to take care of him while he's sick, that he would pay me. And Kit's like, I will do it. And it's like, oh my God, like you're a child, like you shouldn't have to do this. And it's like, then we literally get into like a Great Depression narrative of like, I walked, you know, five miles in the (laughs) snow uphill. Like basically she does that because she misses a streetcar that he'd given her a nickel to take. And then she realizes if she just walks both ways, she could be saving money that she can present to her mom as a Christmas gift to pay the electric bill. Okay, that's where we're at. When she arrives at the house and she's like, everyone's like, oh my God, Uncle Hendrick, who's worse, Uncle Hendrick or Inky? And it's like, I guess the dog, like... (laughs) But it's truly like, this is a man who doesn't believe anyone deserves any form of charity. And if you can't earn your own way, you need to get out. And it's like, you're telling me this guy's taking on a dog? He has Aunt March vibes. I'm going to say that because also there's like a task where she's asked to read aloud. And like, there's definitely those kinds of vibes. Here's where I think like all of these books are ultimately about like pushing an FDR and like certain like vision of Democrat narrative. When you think about Daddy Warbucks, like, the answer's in the question. Like, his money comes from war profiteering. You know that if Hendrick could, he'd be all about the war profiteering. He's just not there yet. When you watch Annie, and also, like, let's be real, the dress that Kit gets at the end of this book is an Annie dress. It is literally the Annie dress. It's a big-time Annie vibe. It is a Shirley Temple vibe. Here's my thing about that. Like, are we supposed to believe that like being a war profiteer ultimately softens you toward children and the fact that Hendrick doesn't have a war he can invest in means that he's not nice yet like if you were from another civilization and you only had this book and Annie you would be like okay so war softens wealthy men because they have even greater wealth and then they want to take on blonde or red-headed girls to like be partial boards and like emotional supports like that's what you take away I mean, yes, I was thinking a lot about actually like Joseph Kennedy, who derived much of his wealth during this period from being a bootlegger and then like engaging in like security trading. But it's like he did not react to this by being like, there's children who have warmed my heart and I've become a really sweet person. It's like he cheated on his wife with Gloria Swanson and got into the film industry. Um, So it's like it's very strange. And I do think about the ways that wealthy people are depicted in ways in which philanthropy empowers them to seem human as they behave in ways that are inhumane. So like there's a woman who just wrote a book about like wealthy people investing today and basically said, like, if you look at Bill Gates, everyone thinks his foundation is amazing. But actually, he's using philanthropy to enter future markets for Microsoft. Like, so there's always like some ulterior motive, I guess. So I'm kind of like, what is Uncle Hendrick's ulterior motive? Like, what are we supposed to make of this man? We have no idea where his money comes from. We've never been told what he did for a job. It's just like, he feels kind of tropey. Like the rest of the book feels very, very real. And he just feels kind of like a caricature to me of like cranky older rich man who like thinks no one else 
Like he was born in a log cabin, he built himself, and no one else can possibly understand, and he doesn't know anyone anything. And if you think that she is not being asked to spoon alcohol into his evening drink as part of his, quote, medicine, <sighs> he has the same disease as their borders, which is like vague, no one actually really knows. I love that literally a nurse is living with the Kittredges, and it's like, but let's send the nine-year-old. We need the to, child. have the child. Things go from bad to worse, like, halfway through this book, when Ruthie thinks she's doing Kit a solid, and she's like, if the outfit is the issue, I had this old dress of mine repaired. We're also supposed to believe there's, like, a big size discrepancy between them. I find that really interesting, because, again, if you read this entire book from an assumption that she is hungry, why is there now this big size discrepancy? We've never been told about that before. Ruthie has this dress from last year. She thinks it will fit Kit. Kit says it's still actually going to be too big. Um, and then there's this handwritten note, which invites from the Smithens to the Kittredges this, like, fancy meal after the ballet. Uh, ballet and that makes Kit furious. I mean, I understand. I mean, she, she like, truly was, like, that was, like, her you ought to know moment. Like, you can see her, like, raging around to, like, I guess, brother, can you spare a dime? Or, like, whatever the equivalent would be. Yeah. Like, she was not having that moment. And I kind of, like, you kind of understand why she would feel angry. I think part of it is, like, when you're really friends with someone, you want to feel seen by them. And I think a lot of the anger in that moment was not just, like, the tone deafness of, like, I'm really suffering here and I have to care for this guy who's a jerk. And he's also, like, saying bad stuff about her parents left, right, and center about how, like, poor their judgment is and how they created this situation. She just has to take it. I think when, because they're such close friends, it's like she she probably was thinking, like, I'm, I really would hope that Ruthie would, like, see me in this moment and see how I'm struggling and know what to do with that. And part of it is like, she hasn't expressed what she wants from Ruthie or how to be with her in this new reality. And of course they're children, so I'm not saying they should, but I think it's just like, it's hard to see them kind of talking past each other. It's like an O. Henry story almost. Like Ruthie thought she was doing a really nice thing and Kit's like, how dare you? It's also, I think it's like how it's presented, right? Like it's early, like they still have several weeks left before this. She's feeling really kind of cornered because now she has to do this Uncle Hendrick thing. They have a fight near the staircase and Kit says, you're always talking about wishes and wicked ogres and make-believe. You don't know anything that's real. Your father still has a job. And when we think back to, like, the early times that we have spent with these two, it was all about, like, the fantasy of the treehouse, the fantasy of Robin Hood, and the way that even their newsletter, which used to have a lot of sort of kind of, like, fun, they can't do that because the typewriter is broken and they're not, as Mm. far as they know, able to fix it. And it's like... Ruthie is kind of in this bind where if she presents a fun activity that has any cost, Kit feels resentful that she is acting like a sponge. That's her word. But to do yes. any of the things they used to do, they literally can't do it, right? Like Kit is up in the drafty attic. Her typewriter doesn't work. We have no idea what the health issues actually are for Sterling. Um, and I think your point is spot on. Like no one has talked to Ruthie about the fact that like, hey, so like your dad paid Kit's dad a visit and it was bad news. Right. They just like don't acknowledge this really like scary thing that happened that involved Ruthie's dad as like a proxy for this institution. But it's also like you do see Ruthie really trying where she's like, well, you know, we could still go downtown for our day after Christmas, hang out with our moms and we could just, you know, 
window shop instead of actually going shopping. And we could have like a winter picnic outside, which does not sound ideal in December in Ohio, but whatever, depending on the weather situation, instead of going to the ballet. And so she's really trying to suggest alternative versions of a thing that they both have treasured in the past. And basically, I think Kit's reaction is like, I can't go back. Like if I can't have it the way that we love it, like I don't want it. Which is, you know, also kind of like, I think, being a child and and also just feeling really sad about like mourning this life that you literally just had like five months before or something. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It's really sad. It's also not like this perfectly even like, well, Ruthie believes in silly stuff and Kit only believes in real things. Like Kit has her escape in the form of Amelia Earhart, right? Like before it was Robin Hood and it was fantasy stories and it was Nancy Drew. And now she looks over at a clipping of Amelia Earhart from the newspaper and that's what kind of inspires her. But that's escapism too, right? And, like, I don't know who's going to tell her what happens in the next few years. Like, it's not good news. I can't get into that. As you know, my brother's a pilot, and he, like, for some reason, he will not hear, like, people lauding Amelia Earhart, which is, like, not fair. But I texted him today and was like, we're recording, and, like, Kit loves Amelia Earhart. Like, do you have a statement for this? And he just <laughs> responded, it's true that not who, not all who wander are lost unless your name is Amelia Earhart. And it's like, that's a tough quote. Like, that's Rick's, I'm saying that's Rick's take, not mine. But is she out there? I'm I'm willing to, I believe that she's out there. I think that what's-his-name Cooper could be out there. Uh, D.B. Cooper, oh, whatever his name is. He's done. Here's here's my thing about Amelia. I've heard a rumor that she's a Patreon at the $3 level. Whoa. So I heard that I'm she's actually hiding in plain sight <laughs> in New England. And she's like, you know what? I'm here for the Duncan. She's upset about the rewards program changes. Like, I understand it. You know, we all feel abandoned just like she did on that island, allegedly, many years ago. I do think that, like, there's something about like Val like she's gonna write a friendship conflict into the birthday book like she's gonna go hard like a mom is gonna get ill a notorious aunt is gonna show up and like wreak havoc or like there's gonna be a friendship drama like this book brought me right back to Elizabeth and Felicity times and like the real talk that Kit has with her mother in the kitchen no one makes a homosocial world like Valerie Tripp no one Like, the conversation that they have Mm -hmm. on page 38, the truth is, said Kit, I'm jealous of her. And she, said Mother, is jealous of you. Of me, asked Kit, but I'm the one who's lost everything. Why would she be jealous of me? And they talk about how, like, yes, like, the electric bill is a question mark. There's no telephone anymore. They lost the car. The dad was literally a car salesman. The mortgage is probably not going to get paid this month. There's more people than ever. You get this sense that, like, Ruthie is so deeply lonely. And you also wonder, like, is Mrs. Smithen's only friend Mrs. Kittredge? We don't know, but probably, like, based on how things are going so far. I just thought that was, like, a very well-written scene. And we know it's, like, basically what's happening is, like, Kit is going to have some issues over winter break, and she's got to, like, get herself psyched up to work with Uncle Hendrick. We also kind of get a very, like, Dickensian slash, like, 
Shirley Temple series of scenes where like ev- at every turn there's a chance for Kit to either spend a little bit of Hendrick's money and have a bit more comfort or go the extra mile and keep the money and she's like I'm going to be keeping that money. I mean yeah it is it is really stunning and I know people sometimes say during the fall it's like Gilmore Girls season and I haven't rewatched that show in a while but I think of it now as like Kit and mom season because that that conversation <laughs> was actually very moving where I think it's it's Val's best scene between a parent and a child that I've read where a child feels totally comfortable being vulnerable with their parent and the parent absolutely shows up in the appropriate way and is like, here's some perspective you don't have on this and the way you're feeling is okay. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay to be jealous and also like consider maybe Ruthie's possibly jealous of you, but she's not forcing her to a place of like, you need to get over it or like, this doesn't matter. It's like, she immediately, the scene is written in such a way that she's washing dishes and she, it's described that she immediately stops what she's doing, takes off her apron and comes over and holds Kit when she sees that she was crying for reasons other than, you know, everything that's going on. So, like, I found that so moving and just really beautiful family life, like you're saying, Val. Like, that was such a, a special moment in this book. And I think her greatest moment between parent and child or, like, caregiver and child, for it, my money anyway. It's also very reminiscent of, like, a marmy moment in Little Women. And then we finally have kind of a brief like break of happiness for Kit when she is kind of hanging with Uncle Hendrick. She gets a bit of a break because he dozes off. Again, like exact parallel to Aunt March. And she starts to sit down and she starts to finally have like time and space to write. And what she writes is a fantasy story. And Mm -hmm really like if you go back to like actual Louisa May Alcott like she wrote some kind of like horror and slashers and like fascinating stuff but she wasn't directly writing about her own life experience like where Kit actually feels calm and happy is imagining what we learn is a princess story for Ruthie and I thought that was like really well done because we've already seen that Kit has like these journalist ambitions she can write the newspaper articles like that's all been like very cool the fact that when she like actually needs to create a space for calm for herself she goes back to fantasy it also showed me okay like she'll reconcile with ruthie by the end of this book yeah i thought that was really sweet and it's nice to see how like their gifts show an appreciation for each other that like they really do understand each other and I think it's like nice that she goes to fantasy when she knows she needs to kind of like escape or chill out but and also like she's allowed to still have that penchant for reality or like grasping reality when she sees it confronted in the street or like in her life that was really special like especially doing it in Uncle Hendrick's house which is like like depicted as like a cold dark place like not a lot of fun there and to your earlier point about her being hungry like it's really notable that in every scene with uncle hendrick she never he's never offers her food like he'll let her keep a nickel and she starts doing more errands for him and like he pays her for those and like she shines shoes and stuff like that but there's never any like courtesy from him so it's like i feel like even daddy warbucks would have been like do you want a cookie or like (laughs) do you want a cup of tea and instead this guy's just like i want my cup of tea then you can read me my book or like get me my medicine it's like there's no like common courtesy at all and yet you know we know that kit is looking forward most to having waffles for christmas she's very excited about having waffles for christmas eve and then she can't get home right there's this kind of contrivance where she can't get home because it's icy right and there are points where it's like okay we get it like he has an icy heart 
Now it's too icy outside. She can't get anywhere. And who saves the day but Ruthie's family? Because mm-hmm. ultimately, they have a car and they are able to bring Kit and her uncle to the Kittredges for Christmas. I love that Kit essentially gets a recycled gift for Christmas and she's very thrilled. And the true gift that she is able to give is the electric bill money. Which she that gives to really mom. That was really special. Again, we're, we're okay. I'm not saying Mom's that Mom's running dad, the finances. I'm not saying that dad is a liar, but like they're destitute and he just stopped working five months ago. I just think he wasn't telling them stuff for a long time. Oh yeah, I'm fully open to that theory. And it's also like, I'm sorry, but what? where is Charlie? What is he doing? Once again, he makes like a single appearance in this book. And he's like, hey, girl, like, I forget what he says. Like, he gets the Christmas tree or something. He appears, He like, there's a cameo at the end of the book. But she gives the money to mom, and it's $2.40. And I was kind of looking around newspapers and stuff, and a doll on average in that year cost around $1.40. So, I mean, she, like, in a book where you would expect her to, like, get a doll as a gift or something like that, like, far from that, she's actually saved far more money than a doll might cost. And to your earlier point, like, she doesn't, treat herself she saved like assiduously saves everything goes the extra mile literally and so that gift moment is nice but it's also like sad because you're like i wish you didn't have to do that she could have bought a flossy flirt doll which is a name that will like haunt me for the rest of my life which only cost a dollar 95 but could have been american girl size they made them 12 inches to 22 inches i would have bought a stereoscope which was 98 cents at the time that's fair. I mean, I would, I was reading a lot of letters to Santa from this period in newspapers, which are so, so sweet. And this was like firmly in the midst of the Shirley Temple craze because mm-hmm. like every single girl writing to Santa was like, I would like a Shirley Temple doll. Thank you. Dollar ninety-eight. There you go. I mean, I don't know if I would want that. I guess I would, but. That was my mother's dream as a child and she did get one eventually. A Shirley Temple doll? It was. It was her dream. That was her like dream, dream gift. Wow. Well, I'm glad that she got one. My grandmother was like weird about Shirley Temple because she had other cousins that her grandparents preferred and they would literally like take them out to Shirley Temple movies in front of my grandma and not invite her because they didn't like her mom who was by then widowed. So when Shirley Temple movies came out on VHS, do you remember that when there was like, we're taking them out of the ball? And <laughs> yes. like, she was an yes. ambassador somewhere. She like didn't even live in the country. And they were like, we're airing them on the TV. Like, Shirley, how do you feel? And she was like, I don't have cable. So like, I won't be watching, but thanks. And my grandmother was like super into it, but it was like only as like a 70 something year old woman was she like dipping back in. It's funny how Shirley Temple like represents something, I guess, to people later in life if they didn't get it as children. I guess not unlike American Girl dolls. Here's my thing about the doll that she gets of her hero, Amelia Earhart. The fact that there's an older brother in the house, that doll's being thrown out a window at some point. I'm just saying that. Like, that doll is going to be made to fly at some point, whether she wants to or not. That's based partially on my own life experience. Um, But, like, something that's noted in the back is that, like, a lot of people had to make gifts instead of buying gifts in this time period. A lot of people gave each other food. Um, And I actually looked up a radio recipe of waffles from that time period. And you can definitely see, like, why even without waffle mix, like, that would be something that a family could, like, make a lot of and afford. And it makes you think back, like... I love seeing TikToks where people talk about how, like, the meals you thought were amazing as a kid, like when you had a frozen pizza or you had certain kinds of things at dinner and you thought, like, wow, we are living it up tonight. 
and you think about the fact that like I loved having breakfast for dinner that could be like a two dollar meal and thinking about other times where like other things were presented in front of me and I was like this is horrible like why am I being treated this way and it was like pork chops (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's true I mean I'll never forget like my birthday when I was 13 every year my parents would let us pick somewhere to go for dinner on our birthdays and that was like our big treat and my brothers would try to pick something that was like a step above friendlies which is where we normally went and I picked IHOP and they openly rebelled against me like (laughs) how dare you they're like why would you make us eat breakfast for dinner I was like this is the best thing in the world I I thought I was going to like Versailles that's how I treated it I was like wow, I'm getting these pancakes, like, what a big day in my life. And they just, they still bring it up. They're like, aren't you embarrassed? And I'm like, no, like, I would get that now. Like, I would love that. It's truly whatever you like. And honestly, like, if you own an Aunt Sammy's cookbook, she was a Depression-era radio star that gave people modified recipes. Page 83 is the waffle recipe, if you're curious about that. Um, I found an article with a food expert who called Aunt Sammy a killjoy, And I was like, let me explain. Why? So I think part of like what can get missed really easily is when people did radio shows during the depression and they were teaching people how to modify or change recipes. The comment was sort of a joke because it was about how like how to not have a feast on Christmas. The reality is like most people could not have a feast on Christmas if they didn't have the money, right? Um, Mm. And so I think part of what Aunt Sammy was about was teaching people. I can't help but think of our listener whose uh, handle is Sammy's version. (laughs) Um, But this is Aunt. Hey, Sammy. Hi, Sammy. Uh, This is Aunt Sammy. And so part of what she's teaching people is like, what do you make with what you have? Like, what is Mm -hmm. not a thing that you wish you could do with aspic Mm -hmm. and oranges and fresh fruit, but like, what can you do with what you have? And looking at a waffle recipe relative to everything else, it's very simple. And Mm. I do love that Ruthie is like so incredibly grateful for the gift and Kit is so incredibly grateful for the gift. Ruthie does have the awareness not to say like, yeah, I'm going home where we're probably having like, you know, an amazing feast. Yes. You kind of wonder if her dad went home after that tough meeting with her parent, Kit's parents and was like, okay, Ruthie we need to have a conversation like there's maybe this thing that's going to happen to the family that's going to be hard so like we need to not like throw in their face that we are not in their situation like i don't know i wonder what that conversation was but you know you also have to wonder like did kit i would love to think of kit as an adult who like grew up and made waffles for the rest of her life on christmas eve or like that that was still like a treasured food because i know that like my grandmother's depressionary dinners were things like, as you're saying, things you could have in your house. Like she would make a hard boiled egg that she would put in a baked potato. I'm like, oh. oh my God. I'm like, this is turning my stomach just to talk about it. And then she would pour <laughs> gravy all over it and put it in the oven. And at one point we were at her house, my aunt and I, and she like offered, she was like, do you want to stay for dinner? I'm making this. And my aunt, without thinking, was like, oh, I don't think so. No, thank you. And she unloaded on my aunt about like, you, well, clearly you never lived during the Great Depression. And it was like, but the context I was missing was like, this was probably in 2008 or nine when my grandmother was not in a financial situation to have to eat this dinner. It was just like, she still was attached to this like food memory or like this time in her life. I also think part of what these books are showing is it doesn't matter how much you have, it matters how much you are willing to give because Mm -hmm. there are people in this book who have a lot they could give, 
we learn that the miserly Uncle Hendrick basically will only let money like slowly seep out of his hands and through Kit for like very specific tasks and there is no sense whatsoever like you don't ever have kind of like a wink moment where he's like I see what you're doing you're trying to save money for your family he's like you do whatever you want just get the jobs done yeah there's not going to be any like charity like openly to her like even when she's like why when he's like take these shoes to the shoe shine and the shoe shine has gone out of business so she takes them home and shines them herself and then returns them and gets paid and she's like well actually and he's like job well done and he she's like well he went out of business so i did it. and he's like okay don't and care then, don't care but he's not like oh wow well like here keep the change or anything like that he's just like i will have the exact change like you know what's funny intense. about the influence of this book when you google christmas during the great depression the first thing that comes up now is an article about cleveland ohio and i don't think that's a coincidence well, i think the internet is like we know why you're here the power that cleveland and kit <laughs> has my god the headline is wow. merry christmas here's your orange thank you cleveland metro mary like what's gonna happen next like she's having a birthday are we invited I hope so. I'm scared. I mean, I hope that there's like, I hope it's a chaotic birthday. I hope there's drama. I'm a little bit nervous because like as a Leo, my birthday matters to me. And like, if your birthday isn't what you want, and a lot of times it's not, you know, it can, it can put you in a mood and she's already has more than enough going on to justify any mood she wants to have. So I just hope it's a good day for her. That's my, that's my hope. I hope by spring, it's like we have a little bit of levity for this family uh like sort of not levity i guess we chose to read a ghost story for our patreon book this month it had some fun it had a lot of fun this episode is coming out on halloween 2022 we chose to read pam conrad's stone words and in the next two months we're tackling genealogy and figure skating which like pretty much tracks so that's our brand we won't apologize and this was a suggestion from our listeners so if you're a member of our patreon you can go onto the discord and let your voice be heard and we pick from a database there periodically so this is from that so thank you to that listener who suggested this um and you can get our get on our patreon for just you know three dollars a month but uncle hendrick pay that allison no no Wow, that's tough to hear. I mean, it's like how many shoe shines a month? No one can, I, that's impossible for me to say. But if you go onto our website, dollsofourlivespod.com, you can join our Patreon link there or go on patreon.com slash dollsofourlivespod, I think. Yeah, we are now more than the Kittredge's electric bill, but due to inflation since we started this podcast, this is now less than an actual iced coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. That's upsetting for you so to bring that up. I feel okay about it. Yeah, we are still on all of the socials. Um, be sure to follow us, Dolls of Our Lives podcast on Instagram, Dolls Lives on Twitter. We have a link tree that we post to on those. So you can find everything really easily, including a resource guide um, from someone who worked with us over the past few months, Anna Lee. You can dig deeper into Rebecca, and soon we'll also be posting more about Kit. Very exciting. And thank you, Annalie, for all your hard work. It's really great. And thanks to all of you. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us in iTunes or tell a friend. And that's the best way to kind of help us kind of continue making our show and spreading, you know, growing this community that we have that's so fun to be a part of. So thank you so much.